Well, if you're joining with us this evening, uh, we are uh, in a new series. We're starting a new series in Romans. Uh, and so you've picked a good night to come along. We're right at the start of the series. And so I'll invite you to lift a, a Bible, if maybe it's a pew Bible or maybe your own Bible, uh, and come with me to Romans chapter 1. So you'll find that on page 1128. So Paul uh, is writing this letter to the Romans. And we're going to be in this uh, up to about chapter 8, chapter 9, from now to Christmas. So please do try to read ahead. Uh, try and, and, and take some time of, of your own to be in Romans and to study Romans, because uh, that's where we're going to be on Sunday evenings over the next little while. So Romans chapter 1, and we're going to begin to read at verse 1 through to verse 17 this evening. This is God's Word, so we know we can trust it completely. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through his spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Him and for His namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us, and we look forward to Stafford opening it up for us in just a few moments' time. I'm really encouraged that we're beginning 
a series of sermons on this wonderful book of Romans uh, in each of the three congregations that I had the privilege of ministering. I preached a series in the midweek fellowship on the book of Romans, and that was because I was persuaded and still am persuaded that the book of Romans is absolutely crucial to a healthy spiritual life and to a healthy and a vibrant church fellowship. The book of Romans, if even in the opening reading, the book of Romans is all about the gospel. I think the word gospel appears about six times there in that section that John read. And more than anything else, we need to be clear about the gospel. So what will be covered over these next Sunday evenings is critical for you to understand whether you're a Christian believer or whether you have not yet committed your life to Christ. Understanding this book of Romans will revolutionize your life. So you ought not to miss any part of this series. However you look at it, Paul's letter to the Romans is the high peak of Scripture. Martin Luther called it the clearest gospel of all. If a man understands it, wrote John Calvin, he has a sure road opened for him to the understanding of the whole of Scripture. Uh, William Tyndale, in his preface to Romans, called Romans the principal and the most excellent part of the New Testament, the most pure gospel, a light and a way in unto the whole of Scripture. Uh, Jim Packer uh, summarizes it very succinctly like this. He says, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are most clearly seen from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there's no telling what may happen. I trust the message of Romans will get into all our hearts again, and that we'll begin to discover again a freshness and a newness and an enthusiasm about the gospel. Because what makes Romans so crucial, as I say, is that it helps us to understand the gospel. The Apostle Paul is passionate about the gospel. It's the driving force of his ministry. In the very first verse of this book, he says that he's called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And then he immediately goes on to define the gospel in verses 2 and 3. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I was tempted to drill down just in those two verses, but John assigned me right up to verse 17, so I really want to get through to verses 16 and 17. But as Paul says there in those opening verses, the gospel is all about Jesus, promised by the prophets, and now, because of his resurrection from the dead, declared to be the Son of God with power. And that fact alone has massive implications for you and me personally and for the future of this world. But the climax of this opening section of the letter comes in verses 16 and 17, words that many of us know very well. I'm not ashamed of the gospel 
because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And by saying that he's not ashamed of the gospel, Paul really means that he glories in the gospel, that he's proud of the gospel, that he boasts in it. Well, why did he not say that? Why did he put it in a negative form? It's a bit like the difference between asking an American and an Ulsterman how they are. If you ask an American how he is, he'll say, I'm good, I'm doing just fine. Ask an Ulsterman how he's doing, and he'll say, not bad, mustn't grumble. Uh, We always state our condition negatively, don't we? And I think Paul puts it like this for the simple reason that he wanted to help these Christians at Rome. And from what Paul knew about them, some of them were tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. You remember Timothy was like that. Paul wrote to him and said, don't be ashamed, Timothy, to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. And there were people in Rome who were like that. And in order to strengthen them, in order to deliver them from their fear, he writes as he does. Uh, James Stewart of Edinburgh, in a sermon on this text, made the perceptive comment that there's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And without doubt, Paul felt that temptation. And it's a temptation that we all share, to be ashamed of the gospel at one time or another. Uh, We know that we run the risk of being ridiculed and criticized and made to feel foolish if we really stand up for the gospel. We may have friends or work colleagues who are not Christians. And while we find it easy to talk to them about every other aspect and area of life, we become strangely tongue-tied when it comes to speaking about our Christian faith and about the gospel. We're afraid that they may think less of us, that they may even criticize us or ridicule us if we say too much about the gospel. And people do ridicule and criticize the gospel for a number of reasons. Primarily, the gospel is ridiculed because of its message. We talk about a person who was born in abject poverty, who served his time as a carpenter. We speak of someone who was crucified in apparent weakness on a cross after having made extravagant claims about himself. And while he suffers and dies... A mob jeers him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he be the Christ. And people scoff at that because we say that such a person is the savior of the world and the son of God. The very character of the message of the gospel tends to produce a negative reaction. Or to put it another way, the gospel isn't a philosophy. It's a statement of fact. People never criticize philosophy because it appears to be so learned and so wonderful. And one can compare and contrast and debate a whole range of rival viewpoints. But the gospel is not a great philosophical argument. It's the account of a person. His life, his claims, the manner of his death, and his amazing rising again from the dead. It doesn't follow the methods of philosophy. You remember when Paul first visited Athens, the Stoics and the Epicureans listened to him at first. 
But when he spoke about Jesus and the resurrection, the meeting broke up. This isn't philosophy at all, they said. It's folly. It's nonsense. He's just talking about some person. And Paul knows something about what's going on in Rome. Because here's Rome, the mistress of the world, the imperial city, the seat of government and power. And there, in the midst of all the pomp and the ceremonial of the Roman emperors and the Roman court, there were these people who talked about the gospel, who called themselves Christians, who said that the savior of the world was a carpenter from Nazareth. And Paul imagines the laughter and the ridicule of the court. Have you heard the latest joke they would say? A carpenter from Nazareth said he was the son of God. His followers are claiming that he rose again from the dead, that he saved the world by being crucified. How absolutely ridiculous. Isn't it so funny and so amazing and amusing? Imagine anyone thinking like that. And in the sophisticated and the learned circles of Rome, the response to the gospel was negative, to say the least. And Paul himself could feel the force of their words. He was an able and an intelligent man. It wasn't easy for him to endure the sarcasm and the scorn. You remember in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians, he reveals how he felt the criticism very strongly. He says quite deliberately that he has become a fool for Christ's sake. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. Foolishness to Gentiles. And then he goes on to say that the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see, because the gospel doesn't attach great significance to human, man-centered wisdom, people criticize it and they ridicule it. There's no place for intellectual pride when it comes to the gospel. And in face of the complex philosophies and theories and arguments of the world. The gospel says it's all about a man who lived and died and rose again. And some people are genuinely tempted to be embarrassed and ashamed of that kind of message. And we can also be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel because it undermines all human effort at making oneself right with God. The gospel tells you from the very beginning that try and work as you might, it will not make any difference spiritually. All your own righteousness is like filthy rags. All your best works, all your best efforts are of no use to you. And people don't like that. They don't like to be told that they can't make it on their own. <clears throat> it undermines their pride and their high view of their own abilities. And with our natural pride in what we can do, you can imagine how the gospel sounds offensive. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And then he adds these words as he fills out the details of the gospel and why he's so enthusiastic and energetic about sharing it with the people in Rome. He says, for in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. 
Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Martin Luther really struggled with this verse and what it said about the righteousness of God. This is what he said. I labored diligently and anxiously as to how to understand Paul's words in Romans 1.17, where he says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. I sought long, knocked anxiously, but the expression, the righteousness of God, blocked the way. Luther made the mistake at first of thinking that the righteousness of God simply described God's character and God's being. He thought that it only referred to God's attribute of righteousness. He thought that it meant that in the Old Testament, (coughs) there was a revelation of the righteousness of God in the moral law and in the Ten Commandments, but that in Christ you get a fuller picture of God's righteousness. And Luther went on to say this, I saw it, and I wished that God had not made the gospel known. Because this fuller revelation of the righteousness of God seemed to make me feel utterly hopeless and helpless. I didn't know what to do with myself. The righteousness of God blocked the way. And you can understand, folks, that if the gospel only revealed the righteousness or the holiness of God, if it only revealed the character of God, then far from being good news, it would actually be terrifying and alarming. The gospel would be saying that we've got to work harder. We've got to try harder so that we can please God, so that our righteousness somehow or other begins to satisfy God's standards. It would mean that humans make themselves acceptable to God by becoming like God with the same level of righteousness. But Paul's point here is that the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is a divine achievement. The NIV translation reflects that understanding. Rather than saying, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, it says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. If you and I are ever going to stand before God, if we're ever going to be accepted by him, we need to be righteous. And what God does in the gospel is that he provides us with the righteousness that we need. We can't make it on our own. The righteousness that we create or that we manufacture will not be adequate to acquit us in God's holy presence. We need a righteousness that comes from God. And God acts to provide us with that righteousness. So this phrase, the righteousness of God, refers to a divine activity, a divine achievement, as well as to a divine attribute. We cannot make ourselves righteous in a way that will satisfy God. But God, by the power of the gospel, so works in us that his righteousness becomes ours. God in the gospel does for us and to us what we can never do for ourselves. The gospel brings to us a righteousness from God. So we need to be clear about this. What is the gospel meant to do? What is it supposed to achieve? Is the gospel just about forgiveness and delivering me from hell? 
Is the gospel designed to make me happy and take away all my worries and all my problems and all my anxieties? Well, thank God it does that. But that's not the central purpose of salvation. The end and the object and the purpose of the gospel is to make sinners like you and me fit to stand in the presence of God. Is to make us righteous in the sight of God. And unless we have something or someone that will, will enable us to do that, now and in the day of judgment, we are not saved. So the gospel is intensely concerned about the righteousness of God. So how can I be righteous in God's sight? Before God can pronounce me righteous and just, I must have kept the law. I must have honored it in every respect. But how can I do that? I'm a sinner. No matter how hard I try, I just keep falling and failing. And the answer to that dilemma is the whole glory of the gospel. What is revealed in the gospel, says Paul, is God's way of solving that problem. The gospel tells us about our righteousness from God, a righteousness provided by God, which satisfies God's standards. And it happens like this. The Lord Jesus Christ steps into our world. He satisfies the law of God in every sense. He is the perfectly righteous one. He was made under the law. He rendered a perfect obedience to the law. And in his death upon the cross, he took the guilt and the penalty meted out by the law upon all sin. He took the place of lawbreakers like you and me on the cross. And he honored the law completely. He honored it positively and negatively, actively and passively by his life and in his death. So when we believe in Jesus, we are united by faith to him. <clears throat> All that he is becomes ours. The gospel gives to us who believe the very righteousness of God as our own. And when we believe in Jesus, God cancels the debt of sin on one side and credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Christ in the other. All the perfection of Christ, all the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ becomes ours so that we stand in the presence of God, robed, clothed with all that God gives us. And that's what Paul means when he says, for in the gospel, our righteousness from God is revealed. The righteousness of God is ours in and through Christ alone. If I can summarize in one word all I've been saying about the righteousness of God, then it's simply this, that the righteousness of God is Jesus Christ. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. That's it, isn't it? God has given us Jesus. 
We're united by faith to Jesus. And in Jesus, we have all that we need. And the problem of bringing together a righteous and a holy God and a sinful, guilty person is resolved in Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. That's why the reformers said so clearly and so carefully that salvation was in Christ alone. Because all that we need in terms of righteousness is given to us in Christ. Now, here's the key question. How do we get Christ? <clears throat> How does his righteousness become our righteousness? And Paul explains it. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Notice how Paul also mentions faith in verse 16. He talks about everyone who believes. So a key element in understanding these verses is to grasp what faith is and what it means. And again, it's not as simple as it appears. Uh, we could point out what faith is not. Faith is not something that everyone has. Maybe you've heard preachers say things like, don't be confused about faith and about salvation. It's all quite simple. Your whole life is a life of faith. And they proceed to give you examples like traveling on a bus. And they say that traveling on a bus is an act of faith. Faith in the driver, faith in the bus timetable, faith in other road users, faith in the brakes on the bus. And so they go on. Even when you eat bread and butter, they say, <clears throat> you're exercising faith in the baker and in the dairyman. Now, to me, that's not a correct view of faith, as Paul understands it here. In fact, it's quite ridiculous. When you sit in a bus, you're not exercising faith in the driver. You're simply putting into practice the law of probability. On every previous occasion, when I have sat on this bus, it's taken me to my destination. My assumption is, on the basis of probability, that it will do the same again. There's a small chance that something may go wrong, but I'm acting on a general assumption. Now, that is not faith. Faith is not acting on assumptions or on the basis of probabilities. It's much more than that. When the New Testament talks about faith, it's talking about something new, something special. The Bible doesn't say that all people have faith. In fact, in the verses with which John began the service, he quoted, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Faith is something which is found only in the Christian. And it's the unique and the special thing whereby God passes this righteousness of, of his to us and to no one else. Faith is the unique and the special quality of Christian people. And we shouldn't think that faith is the condition of salvation. We don't mean that faith is demanded by God as the condition for being saved. Faith must be, not be turned into the one work that's necessary for salvation. That would give us grounds for boasting and pride. I am going to heaven, you're not. The reason is I have faith and you don't. When you begin to speak like that, you turn faith into works. You begin to glory in what you have done. And because of what you have done, you're saved. That's a denial of the gospel. That is a work salvation. Faith is not the one work necessary for salvation. What justifies and saves us is not our faith. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ which is received by faith. If someone 
gives you an enormous and expensive gift and you're telling others about it. You don't tell them what a great person you are because you took the gift and because you received it. The fact that you took it and received it was incidental. The important thing was the gift, that they should offer it to you and that they should give it to you. That's what's great and wonderful. <clears throat> Not your response, but the kindness and the generosity of the giver. And so it is in salvation. We do not glory in our faith, but we glory in the righteousness of God, which has become ours by faith. It is by faith from first to last. And that's Paul's way of saying that faith and faith alone is the instrument or the channel of salvation. What an important statement that is. It made Martin Luther leap for joy when he read the quotation from Habakkuk, the light dawned. There is such a thing, he realized, as a righteous or a just person. And it was all a matter of faith. <coughs> Luther saw the difference between law and faith. He'd been trying to work a righteousness that would please God according to the law. And he saw how impossible and how unattainable that was. How can I be righteous? It's a righteousness that comes by faith. It's a righteousness which God gives to faith. And Luther's life and outlook was revolutionized. Here's what he said. When I saw the difference that law is one thing and gospel another, I broke through. As I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest, my most comforting word, so that this expression of Paul's became to me, in very truth, a gate of paradise. What a revelation. What a transformation. From a miserable, unhappy monk, counting his beads, fasting and sweating and praying, and being more and more conscious of his failure, to being a herald of the Reformation and a preacher of the gospel. And it all came through an understanding of this one verse, Romans 1, 17. The righteous will live by faith. Now says Paul, that's my message. That's what the gospel reveals. That's what's revealed clearly in the fullness of the gospel. And that's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How are we going to live? We're going to live by faith. And that's why we say that the Christian life is a life of faith. Faith from first to last. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's not just a question of exercising faith once at the beginning of the Christian life, but right the way through the Christian life, we're exercising faith as we trust our Savior. Some of you are thinking, if the Christian life is a life of faith, then my faith is very weak. How do I know that I will survive as a Christian? Can my faith ever fail? Listen, it's not the amount of your faith that's important. It's the object of your faith that matters. And if your faith, however small and however weak, is focused on Jesus Christ, you will never fail. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Our confession of faith says that while faith may be assailed or weakened, it always gets the victory. 
And the reason why it always gets the victory is because it's focused on Christ alone. He alone is our hope, our salvation, our righteousness. In Christ alone, my hope is found. So we can say with the apostle, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith.